Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I talk to an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode three. In this episode, I'm talking to Adam Yurchek, longtime pro magic player. Adam's been to 26 pro tours and he's played in worlds. Adam writes for TCG Player and has featured columns on quiet speculation. We talk about how he got started playing Magic in the Junior Super League and his janky Pickles deck that he played at Worlds in 2007. Adam shares some wisdom with us about leveling up, tournament prep, and how to make it onto the Pro Tour. I really enjoyed sitting down with Adam. Please enjoy this episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Hey there, Adam. Thanks so much for being here with us. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. What is the most recent deck you just played? So last weekend, I played in Grand Prix, New York City, slash Grand Prix, Secaucus, New Jersey, and I played green-white tokens in standard. That's awesome. Where is Secaucus, New Jersey, you said? I believe Secaucus means the area of snakes. It's known for having a lot of snakes. Um, Yeah, it was very swampy. Did a lot of people go to that? I believe it was around 2,000 people. Wow, that's pretty big. Yeah, it was surprising how many old faces I saw there. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, New York just brings out a lot of people. Wow, that's cool. And you're out on the East Coast. Yeah, I'm in Ohio. You're in Ohio. So, kind of, is that, that's Midwest, right? Yeah, it's in the Midwest, but it's it's really the, the most Eastern of the Midwest. It starts the Midwest, so cool. it's pretty easy to access. Yeah, yeah. West and the East Coast. Being in Ohio has definitely been a good location for playing Magic competitively. Really? It's just kind of in the middle? Yeah. So, this is just something that has stuck with me. There was a Pro Tour a number of years ago. I've played in 26 Pro Tours. And I was at a Pro Tour maybe five years ago, and one of the coverage people came up to me, I believe it was Rich Hagen, and he told me, Adam, you have played in more FNM tournaments than anyone else playing in this tournament. And I was like, what? Wow. I've known I've played some FNM tournaments, but that completely took me by surprise. So part of that reason is one of the stores I played at on Tuesdays reported the event as a Friday Night Magic. Oh, that's too funny. Yeah, but the point remains, I've definitely played a lot of local events, and those were really important for me to build up my skills and meet people in the community and stay focused in the game. And recently, I haven't been playing as much locally. I play more online. Yeah. And I find when I do play live events like Grand Prix, I'm more rusty, and it's because I'm not playing at FNM every week. It's not exactly the same game playing online. Paper magic and online magic, it's got a different feel for you. It does. They are the same game and they're both interchangeable and they're both important uh, for one another. The symbiotic relationship. I mean, there's a difference between shuffling your cards and putting those counters on your planeswalkers and putting tokens into play. Like, for example, I played green-white tokens last weekend. Yeah. And most of my testing, really all of my testing was online. I sit down to play the deck in paper and mistakes were made simply because of the mechanics. I I didn't have the muscle memory. That's so fascinating. Do you think that you should have had like a playmat out next to your keyboard and you should have had like a paper version of that, even in in proxies, so that you could build the muscle memory of physically putting dice on things, flipping things? Yeah. So something I have been trying to do is build a paper deck and goldfish it along when I'm playing, but I don't have the playmat out. I don't have dice out. I think doing that would be a good start and really just making sure I get to some local events. I do play a little bit online, but when I go from Paper Magic to online and I'm hitting that F2, I have missed mm-hmm. so many attack phases that I 
have been so frustrated with myself. <laughs> like never in a million years would I have not attacked in real life, but you hit F2 or you click OK and you don't get to attack. Misclicks are everywhere online. Everyone's punted matches to misclicks. <laughs> and that's definitely a big part of it. There's a muscle memory for playing online too. Yeah. <laughs> Goes both ways. That's so funny. Yeah, I played Magic since I was 12 or 13 and I'm 29 now. So I've played it over half my life and I've grown up with the game from being a kid to being an adult and it's definitely helped shape who I am and has driven some of the direction in my life. So on that, and sort of something I wanted to talk about something that kind of came up this weekend in discussion at the Grand Prix is the JSS circuit or the Junior Super Series. I also used to be known uh, in the 9 as the Junior Pro Tour. And this was basically a, a series of tournaments directed at youth players. Uh, I believe when I played it was 16 and under. At various times it was 18 and under. It awarded scholarships. So you'd go to a local event, play, winner would get a scholarship, and some people would get invited to a championship, which coincided with Pro tours or U.S. nationals and basically pit the best young players from around the country against each other. First, the best players in your local area and then from around the country. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and a lot of players who you may have recognized now played in those events, and it really helped create generations of players, and it helped get people in the competitive magic and also helped bring in families into the game. I remember being at the championship in Orlando, Florida, uh, at Disney World, and Richard Garfield, the creator of magic, held a seminar with parents, and it really enlightened a lot of people. And I remember at the GP last week, Ben Friedman was talking to, to a man and his son, and his son was probably 12 or 13. And playing the GP and winning some matches, we were just talking about how the JSS would have been such a great opportunity for someone like him. And it's just something that I think a lot of people, a lot of pros and a lot of people who are just familiar with the circuit, judges who may have worked the events, thought it was a great program. And I can imagine that it really helped draw people into the game and helped create loyal customers. And I think it just had a lot of uh, goodwill. When did you start playing Magic? So I met one of my best friends in around second grade. I had a friend on the playground and he said, hey, you should talk to this guy. He knows the secrets to this video game. Talk to him. He'll nice. tell you what you need. And I talked to him. And it was true. And I befriended him and we started hanging out a little bit and became friends. And he had this game Magic that he played. He played with some of his friends and he also played with his mother and he tried to get me into the game he showed me the on um, the internet version or rather he showed me the computer version Chandelar. oh yeah and i did not like it i could not get into it i had no interest in it that was that old version when you just kind of like walked around right yeah i think so i did i don't really remember really looking at it for too long yeah i can remember Playgrats, the card he had i can still remember that just did not appeal to me. And then maybe a year or so later, some of my local friends on the street, some of my best friends suddenly had magic cards and they were playing it and suddenly I needed to get cards. So I went to the local's card shop on my bike and got some cards. And then of course, my friend who tried to show me the game was pretty happy and he became kind of my mentor in the game. And he told me what to buy. He told me to buy fifth edition packs because he didn't like the sixth edition rules. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I shouldn't buy the Urza's Legacy cards. Versus Legacy was the newest set. Oh, wow. I shouldn't buy that. I should buy the older cards. Mm -hmm. 
So basically, he gave me all this casual advice, and he played with his mom, and they didn't play to win. They played to build up a board and do cool things, and they played five-color decks with 500 cards, and they played games for days with dozens and dozens of permanents in play. Wow, that's amazing. So that was kind of my exposure. And then I played with my local friends on the literally the kitchen table or the porch table. And I remember it was a great day when I could get my deck to fit into a clamshell case, like a 150 card clamshell case or however many they fit. Uh-huh. And I remember when I actually built a deck that was two colors and not five colors. Oh, man. And then I remember getting on the computer at school and figuring out what a rare was because remember I was buying fifth edition cards. Right. And you would have rarities and I basically slowly figured out what the game was and then I figured out about the world championships and I saw decks and then things really took off for me at the mall. There was a gamekeeper store which used to be the retail arm of Wizards of the Coast. Uh-huh. They held a league. It was called the Arena League in the mall. It was literally in the food court. And we played there. I remember the first day it opened, my brother and I, my younger brother and I were the only people there. It was Nemesis Sealed Deck. And my boosters had no commons. It had one rare and 14 uncommons. Oh my God. So we had sealed decks, yeah, with 40 something uncommons. And then slowly people started joining and more people showed up and people had instructed decks. And I learned about some formats. I mostly play, I remember playing a lot of multiplayer games like Emperor 3v3. And then I found out about the JSS, the Junior Super Series. And that was my jump to playing tournaments. So when did you make it out to some of your local game stores to play in like a, a retro version of FNM? So yeah, that's the thing. I never had a local store. The, the closest thing to it was this league in the mall. And then one day this gamekeeper, which was a kiosk, actually got a storefront. Cool. This was maybe sometime around Odyssey. And then they started having the equivalent of FNM. They started having those drafts on Friday. I guess it was actually just FNM. And that's when I started drafting more. I think they may have had some standard eventually. So that was a nice way to start playing. It was pretty close to my house. Yeah. Before I was driving. And that was nice. And then also at that Arena League is how I discovered Magic Online. Oh, yeah. Someone told me, hey, there's this new Magic Online. It's in a beta test. You can get an account. So I've been playing Magic Online since the beta test. I think that was maybe 2001. Wow. And that was definitely a level up moment. That's amazing. And so that was a level up moment for you. Yeah. Playing online was an opportunity to play against people all around the world of higher skill level, playing at my convenience, playing competitively, especially that really was a crucible to start winning because if you start losing a lot, you figure out how to win. And also it was an amazing way to learn the rules. And also I tell people that playing online gives you a framework to think about the game and think about the stack and think about the rules. It, it lays out for you this visual way to think about the game. And then when you're actually playing the game, you can think back to your playing online and visualize how it it works. Whereas if you've never played online, your brain just hasn't developed like that. You just never actually see those triggers going onto the stack and resolving. And so you played a lot in the Arena League. You played in the Junior Super Series. Did you play during college? Yeah. So in my senior year of high school, I qualified for the Pro Tour for the first time. So I played the, the JSS until I was 16. And then I was in high school. And then I started playing regionals, states, um, PTQs, and started trying to get onto the Pro Tour and starting to, you know, play with the, the big kids, if you will. 
Yeah, that's amazing. What was the first pro tour that you went to? So that was Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, it was the Skins Pro Tour, meaning you actually got prize per round. And then once you lost three times, you were out. It was the only time they did that. Mm-hmm. It was kind of an interesting one to, to start out. It was Kamigawa Block. Okay. I won an extended PDQ playing Mind's Desire Combo. I top dated at X and 2. I was like 5 and 2, and I was the 8th seed. I won out, and I won. I went to the Pro Tour, and I didn't really have a testing group, and I was not super prepared. Now, keep in mind, this was only when it was it was a constructed Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. There was no limited at the time. Yeah. A Pro Tour was either limited or constructed. And I went, and I, I played a janky deck that I basically got from an article, and I won the first round, and I won 0-3, so I, I won like 100 bucks. Uh-huh. And I basically wanted more after that, and that was definitely when I realized what it took to actually win at the higher level, or I would have to level up my game. And I started playing more online and playing more locally, and obviously my game had improved at that point because I won a local GPT for a Grand Prix that summer, and then I played some... I picked up a white weenie aggro deck with Umazawa's Jite in that block, yeah, which was underpowered compared to the Gifts Ungiven deck that took over the format, but I learned how to play it well, and then I started playing PTQ with it and I got second in a PTQ and then I won a PTQ which was my second PTQ win and then I went to a Grand Prix and my friend and I both top baited this Grand Prix. That's amazing. And that was definitely my biggest accomplishment at that point. That was a couple of months before I started college. Wow. So how long did it take from you finishing your first pro tour to being qualified to your second pro tour? So I played that first pro tour in the spring. I actually qualified right like a couple days around my 18th birthday. And then I played that pro tour that spring. And then I played my next pro tour that fall. Wow. So you were really focused and you were just... You were just hitting the ground running. Yeah, when I won that PTQ with the white weenie deck, and then I went on to top eight a GP in that same format. That's amazing. And then I started basically a string of attending pro tours, doing pretty poorly, qualifying again, and basically repeating that process with GPs mixed in until I eventually found myself qualified for all of them with enough pro points. What kind of got you to go from bottom of the pack of the Pro Tour to feeling comfortable and really competing at the Pro Tour? I went to college shortly after I top eight the Grand Prix and played my first Pro Tour. Uh-huh. And that is when I was in a deep network of people, people with a lot of experience on the Pro Tour and Grand Prix and just in Magic in general. And that is how I brought my game up to the next level. That's awesome. By being in that network. Yeah. And so you said that you've competed in 26 Pro Tours. Yeah. That's amazing. So there, you got to a point where you stopped having to qualify for them and that you were just invited to all of them. Yeah. At a certain point after qualifying through PTQs multiple times, I went on a run where I made the finals of a Grand Prix and then I went on to get ninth at the next Pro Tour and that set me qualified for the next year. And then that next year, I made it onto the national team, the U.S. national team. That's awesome. And I had a season where I won a Grand Prix and got second in a Grand Prix. And that kept me on. And just having some decent finishes throughout there kept me on playing multiple Pro Tours. How many Pro Points do you need to get the invite to all the Pro Tours? At that time, I believe it was 20 for most of the time, perhaps 25 for some of it. And how many points would you get for top eighting a GP, for example? So I, I believe top eighting a GP, it would be four. Maybe at one point it was six. Um, attending a Pro Tour, you'd get two. And then with some better finishes, you'd get four or six or eight. Or I believe top 16 was eight. So just attending four Pro Tour, that'd be eight Pro Points. 
Oh, wow. And so with some decent finishes and playing some Grand Prix, it was possible to accumulate them. Also, at that time, you could play a limited number of Grand Prix and count all the pro points, whereas now I think it's the top six Grand Prix result. Oh, interesting. But still, you have to like go and show up and like really do the work and really play. I mean, you still, I mean, 20. I mean, how many do you get for top eighting a GP? And you're like four. And I was like, oh man, yeah. you need to top eight five of those? And I was like, whoa, man, like that's a lot. Yeah, so that was definitely playing a ton. That's awesome. What was the time when you felt that you had officially turned pro? Well, I guess hitting the, the pro tour levels and being qualified for everything felt like being a pro. And then when I actually was getting paid money to attend this pro tours, like I believe I hit what was called level six. Uh-huh. And I think I got like $3,000 to attend a pro tour. I think that's what platinums were getting now. Oh, yeah. So that system changed. It used to be levels and then now it's they use silver, gold and platinum, right? Yeah. So at that time, I was, I think I earned one free flight a year, which was to Japan. And then I paid for my own hotel and I got some money. Now I think the Platinums get their hotel and plane covered, and then they also get that payment. So there were eight levels at the time, and the top the top level got all those benefits, the flight and the hotel, and a little bit more money. That's super cool. So you were in college and you hit level six, and when did you start writing for TCG Player? Yeah, my college career wrapped up. I graduated, and then I, I believe I actually hit, uh, I really hit the level on the Pro Tour at that point. So that's what I was doing a couple years after college. Uh-huh. And then I started writing for TCG Player the very beginning of 2011, Uh which was right after I hit level six on the Pro Tour. And it was on the recommendation of some some friends who had already been writing. And it was obviously a great idea. I wish I would have started writing even earlier. And I made a sample. I sent it out to some sites and TCG Player liked it. And I started immediately and I've been writing ever since for them. That's amazing. Yeah, and actually, it's exciting. I'm going to start doing draft videos for TCG Player in the very near future. That's so cool. Yeah, drafting the newest set, doing flashback drafts, maybe some cube drafts. I'm excited to do Eternal Masters when that comes out. Yeah. Adam, I wanted to ask you about a funny deck that I did some research and I saw that you play. You registered a Pickles deck that you played at Worlds in 2007 in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Could you tell us that uh, kind of how you came up with that? Did you brew it and why was it called Pickles? Yeah, that's one of my favorite decks for sure. The combination of cards that defines a Pickles deck is Vesuvian Shapeshifter and Brian Elemental. Brian Elemental, when unmorphed, makes your opponent skip their untap step. Huh. Vesuvian Shapeshifter, when unmorphs, copies a creature. And if it happens to copy an unmorphed morph creature, it also copies that morph ability. Oh. So if you use Vesuvian Shapeshifter to copy a Brian Elemental, you'll also copy that ability of making them skip their turn. Ah. Now, Vesuvian Shapeshifter has the ability, after your upkeep, being able to unmorph itself, or rather, remorph itself, and go from being face up to face down. So, pretty much very simple combo nothing uh, too hard to figure out every turn you unmorph it copy brand elemental and then you unmorph it back down and pretty simple easy it only costs two mana to, to unmorph the Subin shapeshifter once the lock was started the opponent was pretty much out of it and you had pl- or out of the game and you had plenty of mana to do whatever else you wanted nice you won't see a combo like that anymore pretty unfun to play against <laughs> uh, and then also i want to say the pickles deck is called pickles because of brine elemental essentially brine pickles that's right and that the name that got popular uh-huh and it stuck that's funny not too descriptive what was it like playing at worlds worlds was great worlds is three formats you played draft you played standard and then you also play legacy 
at that 2007 Worlds, it was Legacy. At other Worlds, it was Extended or Modern. And that particular world was in New York. I played against a lot of great players. And I remember playing a match against Patrick Chapin, who went on to get second. I played him with the Pickles deck, and we had a pretty good match. Yeah. I actually wasn't quite sure what he was playing, and he kind of had a surprise element. I think had I known what he was doing, maybe I could have been more aggressive and beat him. Yeah. So he definitely got the better of me there. It's kind of started a rivalry. I've played him many times since then in feature matches and in big matches. And then you also played him at uh, 2011 Worlds. Yeah, 2011 Worlds was known as the last Worlds. Oh, interesting. And, and what changed about that? So that Worlds was the last of the three format big world championship, which had was basically a pro tour and then also had the team portion where it had three player teams from countries around the world. After that, they, they stopped the Worlds and instead replaced it with the small championship tournament, the 16 player championship at the end of the year, the yeah. world championship, along with the uh, World Magic Cup. And so normally on your downtime, what formats do you play? I play a decent amount of standard. That's basically the most common format. I like to do draft. I like to play sealed. I used to play a lot of cube draft uh-huh. uh, when, it, when it's coming out as a format. I occasionally do that still. And I really like to play Legacy. I There was a time where I played it pretty often, casually. Now I don't play it quite as much, but it's enjoyable. I like to play some vintage on Magic Online. What deck do you play in Legacy? Legacy, I, I used to always love Counterbalance Top. Actually, at that Worlds in New York, that was Legacy. I played a three or four color Tarmogoyf Counterbalance top deck. Cool. Actually, that's that's not true. I played Goblin at that time. I used to play Goblins in Legacy. But then I graduated to the Counterbalance deck and I played Miracles. I think now, though, the Eldrazi aggro deck I like and that's what I'm playing. And I'm going to play that at a Grand Prix this summer. How do you prepare for a tournament? So, like I said earlier, I like to play online, play Magic Online events like to talk to some people. Um, I'd like to start playing more in paper just to get the mechanics down and co- start collaborating some more with friends and use an information advantage. But I think there's definitely very important, I think it's definitely important to be experienced with the deck and to test it and to be comfortable because all of my biggest success stories in Magic have been when I was very comfortable with the deck or very comfortable with the format. There's been times where I played decks for months. My best Pro Tour finish was with the deck I was playing for five months in standard. Some of my best Grand Prix finishes were with a deck that I just picked up, uh, the Thopter Depths deck. I really only played it twice in my life in two Grand Prix, and I got first and second. But that format extended, I had played an absolute ton. I had played every deck. I played it constantly in tournaments for the months prior, so I, I knew how to wield that deck well. Cool. And that's definitely a takeaway that sometimes it's, I forget What kind of advice would you have for an aspiring pro player or just any casual player wanting to level up and maybe cross off their bucket list and go to the Pro Tour one day? I would say you should really collaborate with the local people. Find like-minded people. If you can't find them locally, find them online. Talk to them. Go to events and, and meet some people. And find people you can talk to. Find people you can play with. So if you, whether that's playing locally or playing online, whether that's talking in person, talking on the phone, get a group and that that's really the secret to success. Can't do it all alone. But at the same time, listen to yourself. Try out ideas if you have them. Listen to your gut and play decks that you're going to enjoy playing. Decks that you can see yourself winning with. Don't necessarily read. Read everything with a grain of salt. Realize that a lot of things online are entertainment, not necessarily complete works of nonfiction that should be taken at face value. You have to read through it and make your own opinions and get second opinions. 
Yeah, yeah. And really just play magic and don't focus on winning, focus on improving and playing well and realize that every round of a tournament is part of the same continuum of your magic playing experience. And that just because the tournament starts and ends and then another one begins, you're really on this, this same journey throughout the whole game. can't be hung up on losing a certain event or getting too excited because you win an event and just trying to be level level-headed and a, it's a slow continuous process of continual improvement that's a really interesting concept that you just shared just thinking about not as one tournament as one thing but connecting them all together and saying it's one continuous journey for yourself yeah that's actually a lesson i got from poker a lot of magic players in my generation played poker were successful in poker there was a time when i played it for a while but i don't play it too much now if at all but definitely i've taken a lot of lessons from it cool uh books like uh, the elements of poker specifically it's a mindset book. I recommend it to anyone who plays Magic or any sort of competitive game or anything with, with randomness and describes certain things you might feel or experience. Basically, someone who has, had, has a lot of experience at the table shares his wisdom and bits of advice. And a lot of it is surprisingly surprisingly applicable to Magic. Interesting. What are some lessons you think are, are good takeaways? Well, one one obvious one is don't play when you're tilted. Don't play when you're emotionally affected. Yeah. So if you're if you're in some way not being logical or rational, don't. If you're do a draft online and you you misclick and lose and get mad, or maybe your opponent draws a good card and you lose for whatever reason, you're feeling upset or mad or whatever. Don't just hop in another one and start taking picks and okay, I'm going to force this and do this and then you lose and it's just a bad experience. Everyone's done that. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's also the the lesson of or the, the real life equivalent you're at a tournament and you play this tournament and you lose and then you hop in a side event and get crushed and maybe you say something rude to your opponent or maybe you offend someone or heck maybe you do something and get yourself disqualified or banned because you're so mad oh man i mean i've i remember beating someone in in a pdq and then he signed the slip under my name with something something offensive i'm not going to repeat Oh no! Oh <laughs> no! Just like yeah, so that's that's a lesson, and just a lot of the book is about playing your A game. Yeah. So realize that really magic. It's not necessarily about being the best player. It's especially true in tournaments. It's about being able to play your best game. Often, it's not the player who's the best. It's the player who plays their best the most often. So that is a big part of it. I'm sure that applies to a lot of competitive endeavors or really anything. Adam, what would you say to aspiring players that want to be on the Pro Tour about what their path should be to qualify, either through the preliminary PTQ system with regional PTQs, or I think if you top eight a Grand Prix, you get an invite as well? I, I can't remember. Yeah, if you go uh, X and two in a Grand Prix, mm -hmm. which usually puts you in the top eight or close to it. Mm -hmm. So most of my qualifications have been through a PTQ, mm -hmm. which no longer exists except on Magic Online and through other Pro Tours or Grand Prix. So they eliminated PTQs for pre-PTQs. Yeah. I think that's a viable path to anyone who has the time to play in PPTQs. I think for a lot of people, it's almost like their FNM. They, on weekends when they can, they go to PPTQ and it's, it's pretty competitive, but at the same time, you know, it's only competitive as you want it to be. You can just go play and have a good time. Right. And a lot of them are sealed back or standard. I think those are fine. And then you, you can go to the RPTQ and if you do well, you qualify. And if you don't, you won't. I think a lot of people put a lot of eggs in the basket and really been focused on them and then they, they lose and they get upset. Like that's understandable. There's not a lot of opportunities. 
I actually haven't played and been involved in the system. I don't know how good it is. A lot of people have had complaints. At the same time, it seems like a lot of great players have qualified through it. I think that it should be part of your basket if you want to qualify, but you also have to explore other avenues. There's Grand Prix. You have a good weekend, you qualify. I think anyone who can play Grand Prix should, and if you want to qualify, it's one of the best ways. Um, you can't play in our PTQ very often, but you can play Grand Prix often, and that should be something you're doing if you want to qualify. And there's also Magic Online PTQs. You have to qualify for them almost like a PPTQ, and then you play a, a PDQ, but it's all encapsulated in one week. So you can, and actually they improve the system. You can play these online PDQs whenever you want, stash up invites for a couple of seasons, and then play the Q finals event, which is basically an old style PDQ where the winner qualifies. That's something to consider. I think those are the, the main ways to qualify. And then if you make it onto the Pro Tour and qualify, do everything you can to work at it, collaborate, and make the most of your finish. Really, the secret is just giving yourself as many tries, giving yourself the, the opportunities, because that's that's how you get on, is just taking your shots and eventually hitting it. You got to take as many shots as you can. Yeah, and that's how I was able to qualify so often. I was in a location where I had a lot of shots, and I traveled often to PDQs and played dozens and got lucky sometimes. That's pretty awesome. You've got 169 lifetime pro points. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering how many. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I, I can vote for in the Hall of Fame, and I actually last year was on the ballot. My first Pro Tour was in 2005, so last year they actually listed all my stats, and I was on the ballot. That's cool. That was cool, yeah. What are you up to currently? So, I've been focusing on producing good content. I've been writing for TCG Player, writing a column for Quiet Speculation, which is a financial site. Cool. I'm now going to be creating weekly draft and sealed deck limited content for TCG Player. And you're going to be streaming that on Twitch? or It's going to be published on the website like any other article. Also, will be on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, I could also, I'm considering maybe doing some streaming and brushing up. I think it'd be good practice for producing videos and just a good uh, journey in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm also doing some coaching uh, with the Magic Mastermind group with Travis Wu. Yeah, that's cool. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this group, we have a few dozen people who have joined in this team. We, we've had an interview process and we found some really serious competitive people who have the goal of improving their game and improving their success. And we're doing some weekly calls. So a few times a week, the members call in with the coaches and we discuss what's going on in the magic world and their issues and their what's on their mind and the events that are going up and what's going on. And I share what I know and they share what they know. Know, we collaborate and then we also have a forum where we communicate and share ideas and deck lists and it's been a nice process and some of our members are finding success and I've certainly learned some things from it and it helps help me grow as a player so look forward to where it's going. Yeah, and in full disclosure, I am part of that mastermind group as well. And I had never gotten any magic coaching or anything like that. And I've always uh, considered myself a, a casual player that's gone from the kitchen table into local weekly events and FNMs and things. And I'd uh, been to one PTQ and didn't do that great. And at first, I was kind of discouraged. There was a time in my life, a uh, funny story item. I was carpooling in the morning with my wife and I was just like, kind of like in my head. It was like Wednesday or Thursday. And I was like, man, Friday is coming up. 
up and I was just getting like <laughs> I was getting like the sweats because I was like I really want to go to FNM but I don't want to get like stomped you know like every single time I'd go I'd be like an 0 and 4 or something like that and so I I get like kind of nervous my wife turns to me and she's like so what are you doing this Friday night and then like kind of don't know how to answer because like I want to go but I, I don't want to go at the same time and then <laughs> eventually I just start crying and I'm just like I just want to play magic <laughs> <laughs> it's so that's it's like it's such a funny I think back to that back at the t- time I was just like oh man I was so down on myself but now that I think back it's kind of funny because uh, I like you said you, you got to play a lot and you got to f- fail and lose and figure out how to win and um, I've been uh, playing uh, locally for like the last three years and then one day I'm just like started to join all these Facebook groups and, and then I, I found this and Travis reached out to me so I joined uh, the Magic Mastermind and I, I have to tell you I've learned so much and uh, just like you said, finding like-minded people, uh, connecting with people locally. I've made a lot of great friends here in the Seattle area uh, that play Magic, and they're just all, they're all incredibly generous. They're very competitive. They're very smart, and I've learned so much from them, and I've asked them a lot of questions about what to do, how to play, and like, I, I no longer have like the shakes now when I play. <laughs> I used to have, I seriously, I used to be at like FNM, and I would like shake because I would be terrified of my opponent, because I just came in with the assumption is like, I'm just going to get stomped, but uh <laughs> That isn't the case anymore, and I'm and I'm like very proud to say that I top aided a pre TQ a couple weeks ago. So I'm like, yeah, oh man, I was like, how far I've come. Yeah, I you know we've talked on the calls. You said that something you're still working on overcoming and fighting through when you're playing is nervousness. Maybe you don't have fear anymore, but you still have nervousness or maybe anxiety. Yeah, or something that's something in your head that's keeping you from being completely focused on the game. Right. And I remember we talked that you actually had a moment of clarity playing your event where you found yourself really focused and you were completely aware of what was going on and you you felt that confidence and that was great to hear. I noticed a shift when I play because I would always be like thinking to myself, oh man, variance, I'm getting flooded or I'm getting Mm -hmm. mana screwed. It's one or the other. But when I was hyper-focused and I was not anxious about anything, suddenly it changed. It was like my opponent would get flooded or my opponent would get mana screwed and all of my cards just started two for one. And I was like, God, this is not like a, a magical lightning bolt, you know, hit me and suddenly I'm a good player. It's like definitely there's a shift in your thinking and like somehow that shift translates into some kind of an outcome. And I was like 4-0, like undefeated in the Swiss rounds. And that was very surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely encourage everyone who's listening, you know, magic players are always thinking about ways to level up, find more enjoyment in the game, deepen their understanding of the game and also become a better competitor. You know, it took me quite a while to figure out that I was really nervous and scared and anxious. And And now that I was aware of it, it just kind of melted away and faded away. And I feel much more focused now when I play. Listening to you talk about that has helped me think back to my game and realize that one of the negative parts of my game was having negative thinking and thinking about worst case scenarios and thinking about mulliganing or getting mana screwed or getting unlucky. Yeah. Even though that situation hadn't occurred at all. And that even though that was a possible reality, it wasn't actually reality. And really focusing on the exact situation at hand and the exact scenario and really making the most of what you have before you, of the exact situation that actually is and not what you're imagining and just being focused in the moment. Adam, could you share with us a little bit of your personal goals? What's next for you as a pro player? And also what's next for you personally? 
I definitely would like to keep producing content. I've enjoyed producing content for TCG Player, and I'm excited to produce some good limited content going forward. And I'm going to keep competing in events. I've been traveling a bit more to Grand Prix over the last year or two. I've been having a good time. I've also reconnected with my local community and have been taking sort of a mentoring role to some players. Really, the biggest thing for me improving as a player was some of the more experienced people around me teaching me what they knew and passing it along and encouraging me. And I've been doing that with people in my local area. And then surprisingly or unsurprisingly, they've taught me things and I'm learning from their unique perspectives and experiences and developing my game. So really, I'd like to keep improving my magic game and my understanding. And at certain times, I feel as though my, my knowledge of the game takes a leap up. And I just like to continue that process. I mean, you've taken on the role of a mentor. You're a prolific writer on TCG Player. I think you've got 280 articles or something like that on there. And in each one of these articles, you really go deep and you're very thorough about things. And there is that concept that when you start to teach others, you deepen your own understanding of it. And so maybe you were aware or not aware, but in the process of teaching all the readers on TCG Player about these concepts, you've really also deepened your own understanding of them. I found that writing about the game has forced me to create more structure in the way I think about the game and be more eloquent in how I describe it and more clear and also concise. So I've distilled down some of these concepts and ideas that I've had, maybe even intuitions. So that's helped me improve my own thought process about the game and then also helped me become better at explaining it and teaching it over time. I'm always very fascinated by the intuitions of pro players. LSV and Patrick Chapin, they always talk about these mental shortcuts in the game. I think that's one thing that always separates players with a lot of professional experience, a lot of pro tour experience. That intuition, it's hard to describe sometimes what it is. Yeah, I think that a lot of times intuition is is rules that you've created because in, in most scenarios, those are the correct things. There's schematics or mental heuristics that you follow that tend to be correct. So it takes thinking out of making plays. Can you define heuristics for us? So heuristic is a process that you go through to achieve something. So like, for example, you're heuristic to do laundry, you put your laundry in your basket and you take it to the machine and you put it in and you put in the detergent. It's kind of like a computer science term, right? Yeah, I've, I've been more familiar with it as a psychology term. Mm, okay. But yeah, I mean, computer science, it would also apply. So like for magic, a common rule I follow is you're, le- you're going to leave your lands on tap for your opponent's turn. You typically want to leave basic lands on tap and you really don't want to leave artifact lands on tap and you really, really don't want to leave your creatures on tap because if you want to keep mana up, you want to have this mana be as reliable as possible. Your basic island on tap is pretty safe. Your steam vents is vulnerable to Blood Moon or to Wasteland. Oh. Your Chromox or vulnerable to Repeal and your Birds of Paradise can get bolted. Maybe your Seed of the Synod could get Ancient Grudge. So that's an example of sort of a silly little thing that adds percentage points to your win rate. Some people might not think of. I think that definitely is a, is a nugget of wisdom because I'm like, basic lands, but they only give you one color. I'm going to want to have all my like dual lands untapped. Uh-huh. Yeah, completely counterintuitive. So interesting. You could just write like a coffee table book of like magic heuristics. Each page is just one little snippet. And then when you're done with like 150 pages, you're like, well, I'm ready for worlds. Yeah, another one would be to attack before you play your land and before you play your spells, because you want to give your opponent as little information as you can. So by attacking first, you make them decide, do I want to take this damage or do I want to destroy this creature? And just put them into harder positions. And that's just going to be contextual based on the situation. Do I want to represent more stuff or do I want to give my opponent less information about my hand? Yeah, it's really hard to say what's going to be correct in different situations. 
But yeah, that's where magic gets interesting, I guess, is those, those fine little details. Adam, I wanted to ask you some rapid fire questions that I have. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Of the six colors of magic, white, black, blue, green, red, and now colorless, what's your favorite color and why? So my favorite color is blue. That goes back to when I started playing the game. Blue was always just the best color. I mean, it's pretty indisputable that blue just has overpowered cards and has been the best color throughout Magic's history. The rationality and the sort of cerebral aspect of it, I came up in that card advantage era of Magic, and blue just kind of does it all and does everything you want to do. It has the best creatures. And, I mean, really using blue cards enabled me to get an advantage over a lot of my opponents. And clearly I, I did something to set myself apart from my competition over the years in order to have some success. And I think that a lot of it was using blue cards to outmaneuver my opponents, just being more experienced with those cards and doing things that they weren't really prepared to deal with. My next question for you, Adam, is if you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? So I think the scry rule was amazing. It took out some of the variance and randomness in the game and just made it more likely that a game is a game and there are less non-games. So I think that's great. I think that adding more of that would be cool. Maybe you could scry for every time you mulligan. I don't think that would be too powerful. Oh, you mean like just finding ways of reducing variance? Yeah, I think so. Like you have like Hearthstone where you, you get a mana every turn. I don't think that Magic should do that. It's not the same game. Yeah. But the scry roll is great. Otherwise, I think Magic's pretty cool. I mean, you could change the things around it, like the tournaments and the community or, you know, maybe the releases or something like that, whatever you want. But as far as the game itself, I mean, the game is pretty sweet. Yeah. All the new sets are pretty cool and I like to play it and it seems like every limited format is more interesting than the next and every standard is more diverse and dynamic than the next. Yeah. And, I, you know, not really too much to say. I mean, I guess, honestly, you know, I hate the, the flip cards. Screw the flip cards. Get those out. <laughs> the werewolves and the jace, and I hate it. I think, you know, conceptually it's sweet. It's good design. And when Magic Digital Next or whatever it is is going to start and we're going to be playing online and online cards won't be connected to real cards, then we should have cards that can flip eight times. But until then, until as long as I have flip cards and checklist cards and worry about that, I think that clearly there's some limitations of the cardboard. And I think that'd be better if they just designed around that more. Like I think the Kamigawa flip cards were fine. There was no reason to, to bastardize a magic card and get rid of the backside. I definitely cannot argue that it wasn't interesting and that people liked it. I can adapt to it, but it's definitely not the cleanest thing. Adam, if you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? A copy of the comprehensive rule book. <laughs> but it would be an abridged, like a, a DCI simplified version. Like a field guide. Yeah, some sort of like player's handbook. Basically, the rules of the game as they would need to know them. And maybe some DCI guidelines for tournament procedure and what have you. And I think that would probably help tournaments run a little bit more smoothly. And I think it's probably a product that people want, but just doesn't exist. Just a little like 30 pager, just something simple. Yeah, just put some pictures in there. And oh yeah, almost like a, a teaching guide or like a, a reference book. Because having to go online and dig through pages of different different rules for different things is, I think, daunting. 
I think right now we have something better. We just shout judge. <laughs> just shout judge, raise your hand, and someone comes rushing. That's pretty, that's a concierge service right there. Yeah, yeah it actually is. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? In the future, I see it being more digital-based. It's amazing the cardboard has lasted this long. It's, you can tell it's it's antiquated, a vestige of past uh, like fantasy games. and Or not fantasy games, but just the fantasy genre and that sort of tabletop board game aspect. I think that that's great and that is going to be part of the future of Magic, but I also think that it's going to be pretty digital-based. Just looking at the trends and gaming that's where it's going and so i guess we'll see magic going towards more of an online uh platform and then maybe the maybe the paper version will be more be more maybe more standalone type paper products and games yeah like some magic board game or dual decks stuff like that customized magic games and then maybe we'll see like the the real the real full magic experience online Adam, do you have any asks of the audience or requests that you'd like the listeners to do? Or Yeah, if you want, you can add me on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Adam Yurchik, my name. And you can add me on Facebook if you want. And definitely check out my articles on tcgplayer.com. And I will also be producing some limited content and some videos in the near future. So check that out. And if you see me at an event or in person somewhere, say hello. Yeah, for sure. Go up and uh, give Adam like a huge high five. Yeah, people do that. Thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you just sharing your knowledge. And I think it's awesome that you have written so many articles on TCG Player. They're all just incredibly fascinating and deep. Thank you very much, Adam, for being here on Kitchen Table Magic. Is there any final words that you have for the audience? Thank you, Sam, for the interview. It's been great getting to know you and talking to you over the last few weeks. It's definitely enlightening to me to hear about your experience and look forward to talking more. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I definitely look forward to listening in on your interviews with some other people in the future. I hope you enjoyed listening to Adam Yurchik. Please say hi to him on Twitter, at Adam Yurchik. That's at A-D-A-M-Y-U-R-C-H-I-C-K. Check out his articles on TCG Player and look for his new videos on Draft and Sealed. If you see him at a GP, be sure to give him a big high five. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... When it was happening, it was awful. Uh, or I, I should say, it, it felt weird because I had never just shaved my head before. Uh, it's not like a common occurrence for me. So it, was, it felt weird when it was happening. After it was over, I had to go, because it was a really rough shave because it was on stream. So after it was over, I had to use a more precise raise, like a, like a electric shaver to shave everything even. And that felt, it felt like it was just like, it was vibrating my whole head, which was a peculiar feeling. It's Wedge from the Manasource. He's a beloved YouTuber in the Magic community. Recently, Wedge raised an astounding $41,000 to benefit St. Jude's Children's Hospital. We talk about how he started playing Magic, the Community Super League, and more, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Thanks so much for listening to the first few episodes on Season 1 of Kitchen Table Magic. All of the show notes for each episode is at kitchentablemagic.org. Please follow us on Twitter at KTM Podcast. To find us on Facebook, just search for Kitchen Table Magic Podcast in the search bar. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thank you so much. Also, we don't really have any sponsors for this show, but like in true magic fashion, I did sell some magic cards in order to fund this little project of mine. So today's episode is brought to you by Snapcaster Mage. 
I sold an extra playset of uh, my Snapcaster Mage that I had to a buddy of mine, and it really made me think about how great Snapcaster Mage is as a creature. You can flash him in for just the low, low cost of one and a blue, and he gives the spells in your graveyard flashback, so that's great. I mean, you can do combat tricks, counter spells, cryptic command, lightning bolt. Everyone loves bolt, snap bolt. Um, and even sometimes as a tempo play, attacking for two can just win you the game. So, anyways, this episode is brought to you by Snapcaster Mage. Thanks. Thanks.